Let's turn to Exodus chapter 11. So we're working our way through the book of Exodus, and today is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter Sunday. And we have come to Exodus 11, where God is getting ready to introduce the last plague upon Egypt. And this is significant, particularly this time of year, because this is what this time of year really is all about. Now, it wasn't called Easter. Easter is something that was created later. It's a name we use. But what Easter really is and what we celebrate at Easter, we are celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ occurred because Jesus was crucified. You can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. And that is true for Jesus, and that is true for us. We all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We all want to be raised up with Jesus, but in order to be raised up with Jesus, we have to be crucified with Jesus. And so when we get to... Exodus chapter 11, nine plagues have come upon Egypt. And the last and the most devastating plague of all was the death of the firstborn. So I'm going to read Exodus chapter 11. And actually I'm going to read into chapter 12. I'm going to read through verse 14. So I'm going to read Exodus 11 and part of 12. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Let's, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then shall then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. With its head, with its legs, and its entrails, you shall let, it be, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance." I want you to hold your place there. We're going to come back to Exodus. And I want to read now to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Beginning in verse 28. And I'm going to read through verse 44. This is the, Luke's account of the triumphal entry. When he had said this, he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you... Enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. 
And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had only known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, back to Exodus. Egypt was experiencing a time of visitation from the Lord. And Egypt did not know her time of visitation. The reality is Pharaoh had hardened his heart and resisted God that he did not care that God was raining judgment on that nation. And that ruler, that wicked ruler, brought judgment upon that entire nation. And these ten plagues that we've been looking at as we go through chapter by chapter in Exodus is God's judgment upon this idolatrous nation. It wasn't just God's judgment upon Pharaoh. It was God's judgment upon a nation that was steeped in idolatry. But what we see is this ruler whose heart was so hard, even when the people were broken, this ruler still stood and resisted the will of God and the rule of God. And God reserved this last plague that we just read about in Exodus chapter 11 and part of chapter 12. It is the plague where the firstborn of Egypt, of every man, and every beast, the firstborn, would be killed of all the Egyptians and of all their animals. So when we get to Exodus 11, we see that God brings this plague upon Egypt. It will be the most devastating plague of all. The death of the firstborn. It says, from the house of Pharaoh to that of the maidservant, the woman sitting behind the hand mill, grinding grain. And it's a picture that from the highest heights of power and influence to the very lowliest of servants, the most humble and lowest of all in Egypt would not escape the wrath of God in this judgment. And not even upon the firstborn of the Egyptians, but it says upon all of their animals. And after this plague, Pharaoh will let the children of Israel go. In fact, he will drive them out of the land altogether. 
And God tells Moses and Aaron to speak to the people and to instruct them to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and articles of gold. In verse 3, it says that the Lord gave favor to the people in the sight of the Egyptians. And as the Israelites asked for silver and gold, the Egyptians just gave everything to them. So when, when Israel left the land of Egypt, the Bible says that they plundered the land. When it says they plundered, it doesn't mean that they took it. They were given everything. It's like you and your people and your livestock, you go. We'll give you everything we have because the Egyptians realized that their land, their nation, had been destroyed. And after this last plague, the plague that brought the death of the firstborn, they gave everything over to the Israelites. God gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And as the people gave their wealth to the children of Israel, this would be provision for them to worship God as they go into the wilderness. So as we read later on, when God instructs Moses to build the tabernacle and to build all the furnishings of the tabernacle, they had all the gold and all the silver to do all of the furnishings. That gold and that silver came from Egypt, from the Egyptians giving that to the Israelites. So those things that were once used in Egypt by the Egyptians were given over to God and made holy and became articles of worship in the tabernacle. In verse 4 and 5, Moses says, Thus says the Lord about midnight. I want you to pay attention here. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. I will go into the midst of Egypt. That is the Lord. Now that is an uncomfortable scripture for, for some. Because God says, I will go into the land of Egypt. And I will bring about the death of the firstborn of every man and every beast of the Egyptians. This is significant because the firstborn in a culture, particularly this culture and in the culture in the in the east and these times in particular the firstborn represented the strength of a family and so when the death of the firstborn occurred it was devastating to a family but it wasn't just the death of human beings but it was the death of even the animals and in Exodus chapter 12 verse 12 God specifies, he said, I am bringing my judgment upon the Egyptians and upon the God, the gods of the Egyptian. So in Egypt, they worshipped animals. You look at pictures, if you've ever seen pictures of Egyptian tombs and hieroglyphs and the, the, the things on the walls, they, they have all sorts of animals. And the Egyptians domesticated all sorts of animals, and they held all sorts of animals to be sacred. And God was bringing judgment upon this totally complete 
idolatrous nation. And so in the death of the firstborn child and the firstborn animals, the things that they held most sacred, God once again judged the idolatrous heart of Egypt through the death of the firstborn. And the strength of Egypt was utterly broken. Remember, he judged the Nile River, the river God. He judged the sun and made it dark for three days. The sun God, who was the most powerful, could not even shine for three days. Now Pharaoh, who was also considered a god, the most powerful person in Egypt, could not even save his own firstborn son. And even the animals that they held sacred, that they were not allowed to kill, those very animals now died. And what God did was he completely dismantled this system of idolatry and left the Egyptians with nothing. And why did he do that? Well, he has said throughout this whole series of events, he has done this so that they would know that I am the Lord. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. And we might think, well, what's God's problem? Why is he so insecure? Why can't he share the glory with some other gods? No. This has nothing to do with God being insecure. This has everything to do with who God is. Remember, this is not about who we are. This is about who God is. Your salvation is not about who you are. Your salvation is about who God is. This judgment is not just about who the Egyptians are and who they worship. This judgment is about who God is. And worship belongs to God. And it belongs only to God who is the Lord. And in verse 6, we see that there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt. And in verse 7, God says, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. This is not the first time God has said this. Remember, in the plagues before, God says the plagues will come upon Egypt, darkness will come upon Egypt, but in the houses of the Israelites there will be light. The plague will come upon the livestock of Egypt, but the livestock of, of the Israelites will not be touched. And God says, I do this, I make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel so that you will know there is a difference between God's people and everyone else. This is what God told Pharaoh. This is what God told Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel. And this wasn't just so that the Egyptians would know there was a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. This is so that Israel would know that there was something different about them. They were different, not because they were different. They were different because God made them different. God differentiated. So again, we see that it is God, not men, who make a difference. God, in His grace, distinguishes His people from all other people. 
For the child of God who recognizes their sinfulness, that distinguishing grace should be humbling and glorifying to God. It should never be glorifying to us. We should never. No Israel stood up and no Israelite was to stand up and say, man, look how much better we are than these Egyptians. Look how they're suffering, but, but we're so much more special than they. No, that was not the point. The point was we should fear the Lord because the Lord has power over our souls to cast them into hell or to bring them into glory. That's what Jesus said. Don't fear those who have power to kill your physical body. Listen, we will all die one day. We're going to all die one day, barring the return of the Lord Jesus. If Jesus doesn't come before we die, we will die a physical death. And even in the return of Jesus, our bodies, our, these physical bodies will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will pass away. So one way or the other, this physical body is going to pass away. Now, if you die peacefully in your sleep of old age, or if you were a Christian living in the Middle East and they took your head off with a dull knife... One way or another, death is going to come to us. And our death may look the same as anyone else's death. Two people can die the same death. And they may appear to be just the same. But there is a difference between the death of those who are in Christ and the death of those who are not in Christ. There is a difference between God's people and those who are not God's people. And the difference is made by God. Don't think that the Israelites, we said this throughout this series, don't think that the Israelites were not sinful and did not have hard hearts. We're going to see as we follow them into the wilderness, we're going to see just how sinful they are, just how hard their hearts are, just how stubborn and resistant they were to the will of God as Pharaoh was. So it's not that Israelites are less rebellious than Egyptians. And God says it right here, I will show that I make a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. What is the difference between you what is the difference between me and someone else? The difference is the grace of God. I was born with a hard heart. And in God's grace, he caused me to be born again with a heart that will worship him and trust him. In verse 8, chapter 11 it says Moses went out from Pharaoh in great anger and the anger of Moses is correctly directed at Pharaoh and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart but you you must understand that Pharaoh acted according to his will 
Pharaoh didn't do anything he didn't want to do. Pharaoh did not want to surrender to God. Pharaoh did not want to let the people go. Pharaoh did not want to do anything that would indicate that God was somehow greater than him. Pharaoh was the ruler supreme, and he was not willing to allow anything to happen that would diminish his stature. So don't think that Pharaoh wanted to obey God and God wouldn't let him. When the Bible says repeatedly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh did what he did willfully in rebellion against God. And God just allowed that heart to continue to harden. And God, yes, God even hardened that heart in increasing measure so that in increasing measure, God's power and glory would be demonstrated in Egypt. That's exactly what God says. And Pharaoh was, in his stubbornness, Moses was angry with Pharaoh because Moses understood what was happening. He, he understood the magnitude of the judgment. And Pharaoh could not see past his own sin and his own resistance. And like Pharaoh... Our sin is willful. Our resistance against God is willful. And the only hope we have is God's grace. God's not looking to see who's good so he can decide who he's going to save. Because the Bible says there is none good, no, not one. They've all gone astray. They've all turned aside. They've all rejected God. None of them desire God. Then how is anyone saved? Same way the Israelites were saved. They were saved by God's grace. Not because their hearts were less hard, but because God was more graceful. God tells Pharaoh, God tells Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And we see in this whole series of events that it is God, not man, that is orchestrating the events here. He's using the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to multiply his wonders in the land of Egypt. And God could have broken the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, but God did not. God instead used that hardness and even increased it so that his wonders would be multiplied and all the world would know that he was and is the Lord. And if you are trusting Jesus today, it is because God broke the hardness of your heart and gave to you a heart to trust him. It is by his grace that you and I trust him today. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron did all these signs and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. All of this is leading up to something that God had purposed in eternity. God doesn't react. This is something that's real important for us to understand, church. God is not reacting to your situations. God is not viewing you from a million miles away and sees you 
make a series of decisions that have a series of consequences, and now God says, oh, now it's time for me to step in and, and, and fix their mess that they just made. That's not how God operates. God is not our 911 service coming behind us, fixing everything and, and, and fixing us when we get broken. God always works ahead. God is always ahead of us, not by a little bit. God is so far ahead of us that he was working in eternity. It was in eternity that these events were orchestrated by God. God was getting ready to institute the Passover in Israel. All of these plagues were leading up to this last judgment, the judgment of the death of the firstborn. And through this judgment, God would institute the Passover in Israel. And the Passover was not the end or the ultimate fulfillment that God had in mind, but the Passover was a foreshadowing pointing to the ultimate fulfillment that would come through Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin and causes death to pass over all who trust and obey in Him. So like all of Scripture and all that God does that's recorded for us in the Scripture, everything here is pointing us to Jesus. It's easy for us to see this now because we're looking at this 3,500 years downstream from when it happened. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses decided to forsake the comfort and the riches and the prestige of Egypt and he did not fear the wrath of the king. He did not fear the wrath of Pharaoh because he had seen Christ. He chose Christ over the Pharaoh. Now Christ had not been born yet. It would still be 1,500 years before Jesus would be born when these events were taking place. But just like Abraham, by faith, Moses saw Christ. Where was Christ? When did Christ appear to Moses? I submit to you, he appeared to him in the burning bush. He appeared to them constantly as the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He appeared to him and spoke to him and gave him instructions. When he says, I am the Lord. This is the man. This is the God. This is who is speaking to, to Moses. And by faith, Moses sees Christ and chooses the affliction of his people and does not fear the wrath of the king because he sees the glorified Christ. And he knows, he knows who the true Lord, who the true ruler, who the true sovereign is. And it was not the Pharaoh in Egypt. And it is no ruler on earth today. It is the Lord God Almighty. It is Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we get over here to Exodus chapter 12 and we see that in the first 20 verses of this chapter, God is 
giving instruction to Moses and Aaron concerning the Passover. And I want to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, and I want you to see that God makes this statement, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This would be about this time of year. The Jewish calendar is different. They have different names for the months. They operate on a lunar based on the moon. We operate our calendar based on the sun. So Passover, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of the Lord, but really what what this is all about is the Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was buried as the sinless lamb of God. He was the unleavened bread that was buried in the tomb and he was raised on the feast of first fruits. He was the first sheave of the harvest, waved before the Lord, accepted by the Lord. And God says to Israel, this will be the beginning of your months And what God did is God rearranged the whole calendar and made this the beginning because of the Passover, because of what was getting ready to happen. Just like the coming of Jesus has reordered time, we measure our time based on before the birth of Christ, and after Christ. God was establishing something new for Israel. Something that Israel had never experienced before. And God was using everything that was happening in Egypt. So we're going to see later on that Israel was in Egypt, the Bible says, in Exodus 430 years. And the very day they leave Egypt was to the day that they entered into Egypt. Remember how they entered Egypt? Joseph is sold into slavery. He rises to power. His family comes to get grain because they're all dying in the famine. And and Joseph sees his brothers and reconciliation happens. and, And Joseph doesn't get revenge, but Joseph saves his family, brings his father, brings the entire family, brings the entire household. The Bible says 70 people came to Egypt from the household of Jacob. And from that 70 people, now 430 years later, they're going to leave to the day. And they're not going to leave as 70 people, but they're going to leave as a mass multitude. And God, when he sent them to Egypt, said, I will prepare a people. I will build my armies. And this is what God did. Now, he didn't do it the way you and I would have done it. They were slaves for much of that time in Egypt. You think if these are God's people and God's going to build his people and build a multitude of people, why would he do it by making them slaves? How, how come he didn't just make them like the, the rich and the famous and the, the, you know, doesn't seem like he must have loved his people very much if he let them be slaves for most of that time? See, that's the difference from the way you and I think and the way God thinks. Because God was preparing them for what was ahead of them. There's a reason why if you go into the military and you go to boot camp, they don't put you up in a five-star hotel. 
and give you room service every day and send someone there to ask you what you would like. What's your pleasure today? They don't do that, do they? Now, they put you through something that's hard to harden you. They put you through things that are unpleasant because they are preparing you for the unpleasant things that they know are ahead. If things were left up to us, we would not prepare ourselves the way we should be prepared. But God knows. And so God spent 430 years preparing his people for this moment. In verse 3, he says, Speak to all the congregation and say, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without spot or blemish, a male of the first year. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So here's the picture. On day ten of the month, you're to take for you a spotless, perfect lamb without blemish. And you're to take that lamb and you're to keep that lamb You're to guard it, watch over it, make sure nothing happens to it. Keep it clean, keep it warm, keep it safe, keep it healthy. For four days, you're going to do that. And if you're not already attached to that lamb after, before the four days, you're going to be attached to that lamb more so than you were after that four days. And then you know what you're going to do? On the 14th day of the month, you're going to take that lamb and you're going to kill it. Which means you are going to feel the pain of that sacrifice. There is going to be an attachment there that will create in you a sense of pain and loss. When we think about Jesus dying on the cross, there should be something in us. It's a bittersweet thing. There should be something in us that feels the pain of what Jesus went through on our behalf. The sinless, guiltless Lamb of God slain unjustly on our behalf. He took what we deserve. Joshua said to me last night, he made the statement, grace is not fair. And that is exactly right. Grace is not fair. The grace of God given to you cost Jesus his life, and it was not fair that Jesus had to die for our sin because Jesus was sinless. We often think about how things are not fair for us. But the Bible paints a very clear picture. There's only one person that was ever guiltless. There was only one person ever sinless. There was only one person that never deserved the wrath of God. And he was the very one that experienced it. And when we are given God's grace, and we may die, we may suffer in this world, we may experience hardship in this world, But the moment we pass from this world, if we are in Christ, that is gone forever. It's like the kid's story today. 
If you're in Christ, your sin has been cast so far from God, he can't even see it. He doesn't even remember it anymore. As far as the east is from the west, guess what? If you start traveling east, you'll never stop traveling east. If you start traveling west, you'll never stop traveling west. You can circle the globe as many times as you want, and you will never come to the end of west. Because there is no point defining east or west. That's exactly why the Bible didn't say, he cast your sin as far as the north is from the south. Because if I start traveling north, I'm going to hit the North Pole, and guess what? I'll reach a point, and then I'll start traveling south. But God paints a picture that he has infinitely cast our sin away from him, never to be remembered any longer because of what Christ has done for us. When we get to Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And this is God, this is a picture of God taking the lamb for his house. Jesus comes into Jerusalem days before his crucifixion, and he spent most of that time in the temple teaching. And the Lamb of God is in the house of God awaiting his slaughter. This is what the triumphal entry pictures for us. Jesus is God's Lamb, taken into God's house, his spotless, perfect Lamb to be kept until he would be killed. John 1.29, John in his gospel records what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.36, John the Baptist again, it says, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. In Revelation 5.6, the apostle John, who penned the revelation of Christ, in his vision, he says, I beheld in the midst of the throne a lamb, one as a lamb, as though it had been slain. It is a picture of the crucified Lord. In Revelation 13:6, the revelation declares the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Remember when I said God's not reacting? These things aren't God's reaction to what man is doing, but in eternity, before the foundation of the world was laid, Jesus was the Lamb slain. Jesus' death on the cross was not plan B because Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree. Jesus was always meant to be the lamb slain. Adam was never meant to be the one that would walk in perfection before God. God knew Adam could not walk in perfection. And Adam was created and Adam was put in this earth so that Jesus could come as the last Adam and take away our sin 
And in this account, in Luke's gospel of the triumphal entry, if you look at verse 39, as the people are crying out from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, in the highest. It says that the Pharisees who were among the crowd, now you got to understand the picture here. By the time Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, he has a multitude of people who are following him, and they believe he is the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. But you have a, another multitude of people, and you have the religious leaders who don't like the fact that Jesus is seen as the Messiah because they had established their own little empire and their own little system there. And they didn't want Jesus coming in here and rocking the boat and ruining what they had got all set up. And so they were there and they were listening to what the people were saying. And when they began to hear the people make this messianic cry, crying out to Jesus, save us now, save us now in the highest, blessed be Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that was their crying out to Jesus saying, you are our Messiah, save us. And they were fully expecting Jesus to save them. We sang a song today. They just thought he was going to do it differently. They thought he was going to come with an iron fist and rain on the politics. And when the Messiah is hanging there like ground meat on that cross, beat to a pulp, and he dies... The hopes of all who trusted in him as Messiah, even his closest disciples, just fell. Because they could not understand how God could send a Messiah and then allow that Messiah to be killed by the very people that he's supposed to deliver them from. But that's exactly what happened. And so these Pharisees are in the crowd and they're saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear what they're saying? And the response of Jesus to the Pharisees, turn, turn with me to go back to, to Luke's gospel. The response of Jesus, Luke 19.39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now that scripture might not mean anything to you and I, but I promise you to those Pharisees, they knew exactly where Jesus was getting his inspiration. If you can find it very quickly, if not, it's okay, I'll read it to you the book of Habakkuk. It's one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. In Habakkuk chapter 2, now this is a scripture that we like to quote a lot of times, and this is one of those scriptures that you'll find as refrigerator inspiration very often. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2 says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. You see that a lot, you know, leadership, and, and, and that's all fine and good. That's all great. But there was a reason. There was a point to this vision. There was a point to what God was telling the prophet to write down. And if you go down to verse 8, 
Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 8. Listen to what God says. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his, his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house. Don't, don't call him Messiah. Don't follow Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's a crazy man. He's a lunatic. Jesus, if you're really a true teacher from God, you're going to tell your disciples to close their mouths right now and tell them that you are not the Messiah. And what was the response of Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now. If these people don't proclaim me as Messiah, the very stones will cry out. Now follow me, look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 10. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. That is a picture of corruption. What does it mean a stone will cry out in a timber? It was a picture of a corrupt house, a house that had been corrupted with leprosy. And what was, what was the remedy? Clean it, come back, inspect it, still leprous, take out the mortar, scrape the brick, replace the mortar, come back, inspect it a second time. What happens if it's leprous? After the second time, you, you put new brick, you put new mortar in, on the third inspection, what happens if it's leprous after the third inspection? You tear it down and you do not leave one stone upon another and you cast it outside the city. And when Jesus says, if you, if these people do not cry out and proclaim me as Messiah, the very stones will cry out. Now you and I might not get what was being said there, but those Pharisees absolutely understood what Jesus was saying to them in a veiled way that they would understand, he was saying, your house is corrupt. And you have led people astray and you have caused your people to err. And you lead them in the wrong counsel. And your house is utterly corrupt. And the very rocks and the very timbers are crying out and they are manifesting your corruption. What did Jesus do? I didn't read it to you, but I'll read you the next verse. The last verse I read to you from Luke chapter 19 was Jesus telling what was going to happen in 70 AD when the Romans would come and level the city. The stones will cry out, your house is corrupt. God will destroy your house because it's leprous. Verse 45, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Corruption. All of these things happen. John chapter 12 gives us John's record of the triumphal entry. 
And in John chapter 12, verse 16, it says, The disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things, that they had done these things to him. The triumphal entry is what the Passover foreshadowed when God told Israel on the 10th day of the month, take your lamb and keep it. And on the 14th day of the month, kill it. That wasn't the ultimate fulfillment that God had planned in eternity. That was just more foreshadowing. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that colt, he was the sinless Lamb of God being brought into the house of God to be kept until he would be killed. To take away the sins of his people so that death would pass over. If you are trusting in Jesus today, you have no reason to fear death. I don't care what your situation or your circumstance may be. Life may be never better for you right now. Or life may be at a point where you feel like it can't get any worse. Wherever you are, I want you to understand that as you trust Jesus... You are sheltered under the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. And death and the destroyer must pass over you. And Jesus never said, if you're sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, you'll have a great life and you'll never have any difficulty. In fact, Jesus promised just before he was taken to the cross... He told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Here's your charge, church. Do not be like Israel who rejected her Messiah. Do not miss the time of your visitation, only to fall under the wrath of God and his judgment. God has done great things. He took for his house, his people, his church, a lamb to be slain. Jesus Christ is that lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world so that you could dwell safely in his house as death passed over you. Trust in Jesus Tell of His mighty salvation. Glorify Him in your life, in word and in deed. Seek to be an instrument of His glory as He builds His church. You are that church. And you are commanded and you are charged by God to glorify Him in the earth. In all you are and all you do. Amen.